You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. It's a full house in this episode of Radio Free Humanity. Andrew and I are joined once again by Andrew Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative. And we're also joined by three friends from Costa Rica, Elian, Arturo, and Francisco, who will be discussing with us Raya Dunievskaya's 1963 pamphlet, American Civilization on Trial. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we'll be discussing Dunyevskaya's pamphlet, American Civilization on Trial. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to discuss some current events. We are recording this current event section on Wednesday, September 23rd, and like everyone else in the country, we're going to be talking about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the matter of when and how her Supreme Court vacancy will be filled. Andrew, have you seen much polling to indicate public opinion on this issue? As far as I know, as of today, Wednesday, 23rd of September, there's just been two polls. On Sunday, there was a poll released by Reuters Ipsos that reported that 62% of the respondents were against Trump just rushing this through, you know, nominating somebody and then then ramming it through. They wanted the new president-elect, whoever that might be, to do it. 62% against doing it right now, 23% in favor of Trump going ahead and doing it now. But there was another poll the next day, Monday, uh, put out by Politico and Morning Consult. And that was much tighter. 50% against doing it now, 37% for. So get a, a swing of about 13%, more or less, moving from against doing it towards doing it across these two polls. It, that's a very big swing. Could be, for a lot of reasons, just randomness in the sample. Could be a, a difference in the, the methodology used by the polling people. My suspicion, however, is that the one-day difference may well have made a, a difference in the results. In other words, on Sunday, you might have gotten like the raw feelings of a lot of these Republican voters that didn't like it. And it, it took a while for the Republican message to percolate through the population and once they got their marching orders then you know relatively 13 percent of the population or so shifted towards yeah yeah let trump do everything here that's that's my suspicion but you know it's two polls but 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 that's what i suspect and one main reason i suspect this is this 50 versus 37 percent figure kind of lines up with everything else and what we see is again and again and again, you know, Trump's overall approval, similar to 50 to 37. Who's going to vote for Biden? Who's going to vote for Trump? Similar to that. What do you feel about how well Trump has handled the coronavirus pandemic? You know, 50, 37. Not those exact numbers, but very similar to that. So it looks to me like this is just another reflection of the absolute split in the, the U.S. population between the, the Trumpites and, and the anti-Trumpites. You got two camps, and they're going to line up on one side or another, and they are doing so. Nothing is moving the needle because every, everything is being viewed, and absolutely correctly in this case, everything's being viewed from the lens of 
these pre-given sides and which side you're on. So going by what we see now, there's no evidence that I can see that the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg or the Trump and the Republicans ramrodding through a new Supreme Court justice to replace her, there, there's no evidence as yet that that's going to change what's going on, you know, in the election, the election outcome. However, the, the, the big unknown is turnout. Yeah, voter turnout and also voter disenfranchisement around all this mail-in voting stuff. Yeah. Um, but also, is this really, really going to piss off all the anti-Trump people in the country such that they'll come out in, in bigger numbers, either because the activists are going to be more riled up, especially the people who care about abortion rights? Is it going to rile up a wider segment of the population because Biden and the Democrats are going to make a very big issue about overturning Obamacare, which is coming up on the Supreme Court agenda right after the, the election? So Republicans think somehow that by ramming this through, they're going to get votes owing to the gratitude of voters that they, they've done this. Uh, seems strange to me as a calculation. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of what the calculation really is, is that this is this is like Custard's last stand for the Republican Party, even though it feels like very over bleak and overwhelming uh, in this country, the political situation right now, and this situation with Trump being able to pick three Supreme Court justices just seems like the end of civilization. I mean, the reality, like, Biden is consistently projected to win this election. The Democrats have a strong chance of taking the Senate and the House, and that could put into play the end of the Republican Party. I don't know how they would survive losing this election. You know, they've lost all credibility, and the Democrats now know that they have to to root them out and destroy them, or else there's no. I mean, we've talked about the yes, yeah, Cindy um, McCain de- knows that de- Trumpification issue, right? Yeah, yeah. So even though it looks very bleak right now, and it is, you know, a very dangerous situation. We have to remember that they're acting out of desperation. The population is changing in this country. The demographics are changing, and public opinion is changing. And they will only continue to be a minority position. And so this is like their last chance. If they can cheat and and just stack the Supreme Court with all their like neo-fascist judge underlings, then at least they can dominate the courts for the next generation while the rest of the political sphere perhaps passes on to a new type of politic. What I want to protect the people is just to like not get too bogged down in the um, anxiety and fear right now and just remember that like the numbers are on our side and this election could totally be a historic win uh, in the fight against white nationalism and fascism and authoritarianism in this country. There's a real chance for that. And we just have to like stay organized, stay focused, turn out the vote and not panic and give up. Maybe, maybe that'll be enough. One thing that would definitely solve everything in one fell swoop is, of course, a social revolution. And that may be what will be needed to have a fair election here. Um, But in terms of strategy, I mean, I I agree with you. The Republicans, the the right wing, they're entirely desperate. This is really their, their last stand. And yes, you know, if they can hold on to the court, at least 
they've locked in for 30 years or something. But the, both the Supreme Court and the, and the lower courts, they, they, they've locked in the ability to, to block a lot of social progress, with one exception, which is that people are really riled up. Mainstream voices right now are really riled up and are saying, basically, Biden, if he gets in office and the Democratic majority in the Senate, they should get rid of the filibuster and just add folks to the, the Supreme Court to rebalance the court after the injustices of Merrick Garland not being brought up and put to a vote, and so the Gorsuch uh, seat and uh, the Kavanaugh seat, and now this one, and uh, you know also George W. Bush, who really didn't win the 2000 election, he was able to uh, appoint people. So it's sometimes called packing the court, but what it really is is like you know un- undoing the injustices of these stolen seats. So the you know, if they go too far too fast in particular, there is a danger to this strategy, which is people are really, really pissed off. And it's now no longer among a lot of the population considered illegitimate for some rebalancing of the Supreme Court to go on. But the other thing in terms of strategy is this. Before they can do all of this, they've got to win this election, or at least try to. So it's a danger here if they do things that are going to piss people off and the uh, the Democrats are able to make an issue of the Supreme Court, the new Supreme Court in particular, uh, overturning Obamacare. That could easily rile up the, the anti-Trump vote much more than it does the Trump vote. You know, I, I just don't see the idea of uh, Republicans voting out of gratitude that they, they got another Supreme Court pick. But in, in either case, but the other point of strategy is what else does a, a Supreme Court additional seat on the Supreme Court do, you know, like right right before the election? That's what's really scary, you know, because it, it, it well could be, right, that a lot of the decisions in terms of fair election, you know, are you going to recount this? Are you going to count these ballots? Are you going to stop the... Re- a lot of those decisions could, as they did in 2000, that could end up in the Supreme Court. But, but I look, I, I definitely agree with you with the main point is, although these people look like they're in the driver's seat, that they're running roughshod over us, and therefore that they're all powerful. It is not the case that they are all powerful. They, they are really, uh, this, is, this is Custer's last stand. Well, there's a lot more to say on this topic. We'll, we'll have to leave it at that for now. Up next, our conversation with our Costa Rican friends about American civilization on trial. Well, Anne, welcome back to Radio Free Humanity. And for the first time, welcome Elian, Arturo, and Francisco. I'm glad you're all here. I'm very glad to be here with you. I'm glad yeah. to be here. Me too. I'm pretty happy to be here. So our topic today is reading the pamphlet American Civilization on Trial in Costa Rica. Our guests are Marxist Humanist Initiative's own Angela Clard, whose voice listeners will recognize from previous episodes, and members of a study group in Costa Rica with whom Anne has been meeting for the last couple months while they've studied a 1963 pamphlet by Raya Dunyovskaya. I'm going to let Anne introduce the pamphlet and the participants, so take it away, Anne. I'm Angela Clard. I'm Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative and a longtime Marxist humanist. Today we have with us Franco, Arturo, and Ilyan, who are young Costa Ricans, and we welcome them to the podcast as a two-way road of international solidarity. And we thank them for their support of the U.S. Movement for Black Lives and for their dialogue with Marxist humanism. Francisco contacted Marxist Humanist Initiative shortly after the murder of George Floyd when 
we published our editorial on the rebellion in Minneapolis and our first articles on the ongoing black movement. I'm going to let Francisco tell you how he came to start a study group on our pamphlet, American Civilization on Trial, and how he recruited me and the others to join it. First, let me briefly describe the pamphlet so the people out there who haven't read it know what it's about. The first edition of American Civilization on Trial was published in 1963, a high point in the civil rights movement, Freedom Now movement of the 1960s. There was a mass march on Washington, demonstrations all over the South and the North, uh, general upheaval, uh, much like today. Radonevskaya, the Marxist humanist philosopher, wrote the text of the pamphlet, and it became a weapon in the struggle. It was used in freedom schools all over the South. It described black people's rebellions and organizations throughout U.S. history. The subtitle is Black Masses as Vanguard, and that refers to her emphasis on periods of coalescence between black masses and white workers and supporters. When they joined together, whether abolitionists, populists, CIO, the civil rights movement, then there were leaps in activity and in ideas about freedom. In her 1983 introduction to the fifth edition of the pamphlet, she brings out the African revolutions and women's movement in particular, and all along she demonstrates how her philosophy of Marxist humanism developed in conjunction with the black movement in the U.S. and Africa. Now let me return to our Costa Rican guest, and the first question is for Francisco. Um, how did you come to study American civilization on trial? Why did you want to? And then the others can tell us why they wanted to. All right. Um, well, the reason why is, um, well, I already knew a little bit about Dunayevskaya, and I already knew a little bit about MHI. And, well, we have another, like a larger reading group that is very regular. It has been going on for a couple of years. We, we're going to be reading and through Kleiman's work later on in the year. And so I guess I was going through the MHI website and I read through the editorial on the protests. And I saw that there were a couple of people in, in interested like in what was going on in the States, but over here in, in Costa Rica. So I thought it would be interesting and useful to study the pamphlet. And it would, the pamphlet was mentioned in the, in, in the editorial. So I thought it would be good timing to get people together. So I wrote to you guys and um, here we are. Let me ask uh, Arturo and Elian, uh, what made you join the study group? Uh, well, I, I was trying to make sense of the political situation, and uh, a few friends had uh, posted references to books, and one that particularly caught my attention was uh, Fanon's book, and then uh, I believe it's Cedric Robinson's book. And then uh, Francisco contacted me regarding a reading group, and I noticed that the uh, subject matter was uh, pretty close so I decided to to read the pamphlet and take advantage of reading it in a group that already had experience reading it and could explain it much better than I could do on my own. So you're talking about Fanon's Wretched of the Earth? Uh, white Masks? Oh, White Masks, yeah. I didn't know I was going to be involved in a study group. I was just concerned about all this that was happening in the United States, the revolts and, and the Black Lives Movement. And a friend of mine told me there was this guy, Francisco, who was organizing a reunion to talk about this whole thing. And one day I was just talking with Anne and Francisco and Arturo. And, and well, 
and it, it's been very interesting for me to to learn because I didn't know what I was doing actually there in, in that reunion, but I've learned a lot about the the movement and the Marxist humanism. All right, well, Francisco, I looked up, I guess, the the pamphlet because maybe like in the in in what I just said, it makes it makes it sound as if. It was only because of Kleiman's work that we um, got to the pamphlet. But in reality, maybe I wanted to clarify maybe this part. There is maybe like a good amount of people with socialist ideas, so to speak. I don't want to say socialists, but a good amount of people with these kind of ideas that already know Dunayevskaya. So Dunayevskaya is really not an unknown to us over here. And I, I had always wanted to read her work. I thought it was it was a good opportunity to finally jump into something she had written. So, were you surprised when you read the pamphlet by Donevskaya's presentation of U.S. history? Was it anything that you'd known before? Yeah, maybe I can. I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything about U.S. history. Only what I watched in movies and something like that. So yeah, it really surprised me a lot. This point of view because uh, maybe it's something that we don't know in, in commonly in the media. Not as Dunayevskaya uh, uh, write uh, the the history, and she also uh, kind of or makes me realize that there's another way to uh, understand uh, Marxism also. Here in, in Costa Rica, uh, I think there's a group of people who is trying to put in practice social, socialism or, or Marxism, in, mostly uh, in universitary contexts. And I've been involved in, this, in those contexts, but I've, I've never read Marxism or U.S. history as Dunayevskoya president on on this pamphlet. Uh, Arturo here, I'd like to chime in too. You know, like, I, I felt that the it's like an aha moment, you know, like when you read uh, Howard Zinn or Eduardo Galeano's take on history, and it just, uh, it turns you to facts that are not, not part of the official narrative, and it, it gives you a better idea of the context. And then I did go through uh, U.S. history in high school, and uh, I feel like some of these subjects were treated there, but kind of in a vacuum. So when you understand it from a mass point of view or a point of view of, of the masses, it really turns your attention to other factors that perhaps you would have lost in between isolated facts. Francisco, I would say that um, in my opinion, what, what was new was not just that the explanation came from a Marxist point of view instead of a normal kind of bourgeois kind of uh, point of view. But um, the fact that it also came from somebody who was well-versed in, uh, in American culture, American struggles, you know. So those, it wasn't just, you know, a, a new way of seeing it, but, you know, somebody who actually was there. That was interesting. Do any of you see a relationship between the current Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. and the historical movements that are described in the pamphlet. And could you tell us which movement you're talking about, the anti-slavery, civil war, um, populist, anti-lynching, what, whatever it is, what did it uh, bring to mind uh, from today? Francisco, two important similarities that I see between what's going on right now and what happened already uh, in the past is that there is, first of all, a unity between white and black people, which is always a great show of force. 
And also the, what I don't see here, at least in, in the current movements, is uh, that there is any self-appointed leadership. It, I haven't been able to pinpoint any leaders in this. It seems to be, you know, everywhere all at once, and it seems to have like a mind of its own. That's what I would say. Yeah, a, a couple of the uh, members of the uh, Costa Rican study group, I think Arturo, I'm not sure, Francisco Elian, said that when the uprising for black lives was occurring, you know, initially, they wanted to understand what was going on or to make sense of what was going on. And I found that extremely interesting. My question is, what did you find problematic? What is it that was happening that you didn't understand or you thought that was not in general being explained in a manner that you were satisfied with? I, I found myself in a in a moment when all these images of a black person being murdered in nine policemen, this was really hurting me. I actually cried when I saw the video for the first time. And, and was because this video, because I am conscious that there has been a lot of murders of black people in the U.S. and that is almost uh, something common for this community, uh, you know, like being killed just because you were <laughs> in the street. And, but this particular video really was hard for me to see and I felt that I needed to do something to I really believe in, in what I'm learning about Marxism from the Costa Rican point of view or as is being teached in, in Costa Rica but so I, I, I felt that I uh, had to do something about this that I just couldn't be here in my house reading about socialism and and do nothing so I, I was talking with my friend and she told me there was this group of study about uh, the topic, <laughs> about the Black Lives Movement, and I thought that was going to be a way to do something about this situation that is happening in other country, maybe it's kind of beyond my control, but this is the way I, I found I could do something, like learning about, you know, everything. Not just what's happening right now, but what has been happening for years in the country. Arturo here, I want to compliment that with, uh, you know, I felt that the media was treating this with a sense of uh, immediacy, you know, like uh, it was clearly an explosion, but they, I guess they were not giving enough context for me to be satisfied with the explanation. And I was really trying to, to understand, you know, like the African-American history that led to this particular movement. I, and I was also going to say that I don't know if this is this has to be with the humanist part of everything, but I, I when I felt this this hurt uh, watching the injustice over these men, I felt that I had to do something. So I don't know if this is kind of related with the humanist aspect in in each of us that makes me from Costa Rica feel that I uh, I have to do something for for a situation that's happening in country very far. Uh, Francisco here. I would maybe like to add something. Myself, actually, um, I was speaking about the, the murder with a friend and about the about the uprisings. He, he actually was was a black friend and I was telling him in a very, I guess I, I was mistaken. So I, this is a good thing for me because I, I went to him and I said, well, I don't know. It, I mean, it has it has to be about class. To me, it was like very, you know, a, a schematic kind of Marxism that I had regarding this subject. 
and I went to to talk to him and you know I said hey I think you know this is more about class I'm not sure if this is so, so much to do with race and he you know be, being black I guess he said no I mean um, this is not just about class this is also about race and it was pretty um, I guess I wanted to find out more about what he was trying to say and it was uh, just in time that the pamphlet came through you know and it didn't say American workers as vanguard but it said black yeah black masses uh, yeah yeah so the title said masses and um you know i thought i thought there was some truth behind what my friend was saying and i wanted to learn more about that and in the end through reading the pamphlet i realized that it's not it's not just this abstract proletarian thinking you know that goes through history but it's actually more concrete specific forms of um, nations peoples and um i actually uh, i i think i at the end of the text i understood what term nation meant more than i have understood it throughout my entire life which is um, you know i should i should know by now but turns out I, i didn't and that was pretty good to me actually when i think about it it even helped me understand a concept that i guess we as costa ricans should push forward more which is the, the concept of the central american nationality because we're not just costa ricans we are also central americans and if when you when you picture it in that sense you transcend these uh, bourgeois um limits so to speak in the, in the same way that you cannot speak of just americans you gotta you know you gotta realize that there are specific nations within america and you know specific realities realities inside them inside well when i say america i mean the united the, the united states so in the same way that you have those realities over there different smaller realities over there over here it's kind of like upside down because the nationality extends over the border yeah i i guess i guess it, it allowed me to understand this concept of nation for my own reality not just you know reading reading about the united states you or one of you said in one of the study sessions that you also felt an identity with the uh, caribbean because it's just off your coast is that another aspect of of nationality for you guys Francisco over here I would say I didn't realize that these were not just proletarians but also a people that were there you know uh, if, uh what I mean is in the Caribbean um maybe just to clarify real quick for anybody who doesn't really know a lot about this in Costa Rica there is this historic divide geo, uh, geographic divide between the Caribbean and the rest of the country and in the Caribbean is where uh, black people usually live and that's because uh, uh, up, up until 1950s or so Uh, they weren't actually like allowed to be outside of the Caribbean. I guess the, there were some exceptions, but you know, there in, in general they 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 weren't allowed. And so it doesn't feel to somebody living in 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 San Jose, which is the capital, uh, these places outside, they don't really feel like um like part of the normal Costa Rican country, you know, it it, it feels like its own country, so to speak. And the only way I, that I see about making sense of it is understanding that they were they were a nation. You know, these people were uh, brought you know um, from other places as slaves to build the the railroad, which is something that you know it it has its parallelism with the United States. Um, 
sorry, it's kind of complicated for me, um, you know, because it's also kind of on one hand, on one hand, it's a touchy subject. On on the other hand, I'm not like that familiar with it. But what I would say is that I I only just understood that when we speak about how the Caribbean is a divide and um, there is also like other divides within the country, we're speaking about nations. And um, these were nations that were, you know, a byproduct of, of capitalism. And um, there is no way to understand your Costa Rican in, in, in like identity, if you want to call it like that, if you don't understand, you know, how these different nations came to be. I'm not sure if that's a good answer at all. I feel like, yes, uh, there, there is a, a close link with the Caribbean, uh, particularly in the beginning of the 1900s, there was an influx of West Indians coming to work to the railroad construction and agricultural production. And they stayed mainly in the Caribbean coast, which is uh, Limon. And uh, certain aspects of the Afro culture have seeped into the probably the mainstream Costa Rican culture, particularly the food and uh, the music. And for me, what I wanted to understand, you know, like in, in this relationship is uh, how that came to be and what were the mechanisms in Costa Rican history that had operated during, you know, like since the 1900s to now in that have operated on racial grounds and you know like i i have tried to go over several recent texts that talk about uh, certain laws or uns unspoken agreements and uh there really has been uh, sy systemic racism but i guess you know like it's it's not to the extent of you know like something like uh, the jim crow south but there clearly is a divide. I'm interested in, in this question in relation to the pamphlet because Donevskaya makes a point in many places about the relationship to the African movements and the Caribbean movements and that it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to, to slavery time when there was a movement of slaves from Africa to both those places. But she emphasizes the exchange of ideas, not not just the movement of, of people or products, but the fact that this relationship meant that uh, freedom ideas didn't stay bound in one place. <laughs> they were shared all over. And I think that makes the pamphlet very exciting. And so I don't know whether any of that has um, seeped into your culture. I know you told me you don't haven't had a similar uh, active uh, agitation by your minority population, um, but that doesn't mean that there haven't been discussions about changing society, about what freedom means or whatever, um, that could have been influenced by that uh, African uh, aspect of it. When, when we were talking about that in that specific session of the study group, I remember uh, Francisco actually mentioning the, the Aboriginal populations right now. I mean, like, they, they are the minority that's actually agitating right now, and they are in a very big effort to reclaim their lands. Yeah, maybe, maybe to tie that in with Dunayevskaya's text. I would say that there are two things, you know. First off, there is the, the importance in which I, by the way, uh, uh, Arturo is way better at this than me because he knows a lot about this specific subject. But there is this part where Dunayevskaya speaks about the Marcus Garvey movement, and um, you know, uh, talking with with Arturo, I actually learned that you know Marcus Garvey, you know, he he had one of his bases here, and he started out from here, or at least that's what I understood. 
so these these ideas were just going around the continent basically you know this entire kind of like um region and so it it does it does speak about and now that you know now that arturo mentions this indigenous population it doesn't it does speak of this like let's say um ebb and flow of people you know because um this the same population that was going around uh the world you know from africa to the uh, islands um in the caribbean to um you know the coasts and the united states south these were people who were being moved around like commodities and so in these movements social relations developed on their own and for themselves um and I I would actually you know now now that now that Arturo mentions it, I would draw a parallel uh, because right now we also have uh, and coming back to this idea of the nation we also have here in Central America you know this movement of people and we can also speak about that you know all the way into the states you know into the United States you know immigrant workers how they they actually cross you know throughout the whole Central America. And and here we have uh, you know uh, indigenous populations from Panama, people from El Salvador go all the way into the states. They come back, they bring ideas back, they take ideas over there. The same thing happened, you know, with with uh, the, these black masses and black slave movements. So we, I guess, Dunayevskaya points to like this um, this uh, historical movement of people, you know, that comes all the way since uh, capitalism began, and that it's still going on, you know, and and that is how ideas really get developed. I would add, actually, to that same idea that in this movement of people, this idea of humanity is what shows up. It removes localisms. And I guess it's both people and capital that, that remove the localisms. And so it's through this uh, traffic of people that, you know, they realize that they're one like the other. Hey, before we go on to the second half of this conversation, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. 
but we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it, as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice, and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. I was struck by the thing, Francisco, you were saying that this pamphlet was your first time hearing like a Marxist articulate a vision of masses as a vanguard and also that those masses are were organizing around not some sort of abstract just as a, a class but as a oppressed racial minority advocating for rights within society. You know, you sound like you, you have some background in class analysis and stuff you know what did you find convincing about doing a sky's analysis like why didn't you just reject that as some sort of like reactionary cultural perspective that ignored class you know what about why was that convincing to you to hear the thing that as as a person who you know has a background on this the thing that really struck me was that the book and i guess this was that some some people might think that this is dumb what struck me is that i didn't think that she would begin with a discussion of cotton and to me just that the fact that she started off speaking about cotton and how this single commodity shaped so much i think that was what caught me on it 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 it, it meant that she wasn't doing just a uh, you know like a cultural abstract analysis that was um you know shying away from actual economic movement but this was actually you know marxist analysis it wasn't just a theory of ideas or a, a, a like a like a history of ideas in the air uh, or cultures in the air but how they tied to the specific economic developments and so that's what what probably tied me the most to it and um well being from costa rica i guess because i i also spoke to to an american friend who was from work and i was i was really excited to tell him about cotton and he was like, oh, yeah, that's uh, I, I know about that already. To me, though, uh, because I'm not in the States, it was new. And so um, realizing how important cotton was in the development of, you know, the, the, the black uh, nation, so to speak, and the, not just black nation, you know, the, the whole Caribbean and how this specific commodity, which was mass produced and which was unlike, for example, bananas or uh, tobacco, you know, or let's say sugar or whatever you know how this specific commodity shaped so much i think i guess that's what made me realize that you know denarius Gaia was um was really onto something 
Well, what I think you highlighted by talking about cotton and the next breath from black masses is Vanguard and the national question in addition to the class question in, in struggles, put all that together and you come out with why black masses are Vanguard because they were the, always the bottom of the heat. They were always the lowest kind of a worker uh, confined to agricultural work for many, many years. And um, that uh, position in society makes you rebel, but also gives you certain ideas. And it seems that some of those ideas are, are held in common around the world. And I wondered, it seems to me you've been expressing that kind of idea, that there is a humanism that is international, even as it plays out differently in different kinds of struggles. And I wondered if you guys want to comment on on this exchange of ideas or even the same idea just bursting forth in different places without ha having been learned from elsewhere or how this humanist element or philosophic element comes out in the pamphlet and in the world. Does anyone want to comment on that? I think that's a hard one, but I feel that Dunayevskaya makes an effort to state that many of these movements were spontaneous. And I guess uh, w when you look at that power relationship that has been constant through in late capitalism or capitalism as, as a whole, it's only organic that it keeps on happening. There's always an emphasis on who is on top and who is on the bottom. So it's human nature to strive for dignity. Yeah, some, something that I got from the study group is that we are dealing with a complex dialectics or that Dunayevskaya let us think about a complex dialectic, not a dialectic of two parts in confrontation, but many, many parts of in, in, in confrontation, in integration, in union, in separation also. So this is actually something that I learned from the study of, of the pamphlet that it's better if we understand that we are dealing with, with a complex situation that everything that has to be with the Black Lives Matter movement and all this history that is presented uh, of injustice and, and for freedom is very, very complex that it acquired or involves many uh, international movements. It, it is not uh, something that is only placed in, in the United States, but we are seeing that here in Costa Rica there's people concerned. Uh, we're a little country and there's people concerned about this problem and I'm pretty sure that people in a lot of countries around the world are also concerned about this situation so I, I don't know if it, it, this has to be with an uh, question, but it is uh, actually something that I, that I, when we talk about this, that there's a complexity that we are dealing with, that there's situations related with the capital, but also with politics and also slavery and freedom. There's, it's not an unidimensional dialectic problem, but it's a multidimensional, for me, dialectic problem. 
Let me ask Arturo if you tell us a little bit about Marcus Garvey's stay in Costa Rica. I was surprised to learn about that. Uh, Marcus Garvey, of course, was the West Indian guy who spent many years in the U.S. organizing black masses and had, in fact, a few million people in his organization. And it was a back-to-Africa movement which was phony, and he was, you know, scamming people. But the point that Donevskaya brings out in this pamphlet was that it gave the absolute lie to the idea that black people couldn't be organized, couldn't get together around ideas. And it showed the depth of the, uh, of the hatred of racism and the way people were forced to live in the U.S. And so I knew about that, but I didn't know about his travels in Latin America. Can you tell us a little about that, Arturo? I knew you were going to ask this, so I decided to dig a little deeper. He sailed from Kingston, Jamaica, to Costa Rica in 1910 because his uncle had secured a job for him working for the United Fruit Company. And he worked as a timekeeper. So he became aware of the long hours that workers uh, had to work in really a bad situation. It was a swampy land, and there was a bunch of snakes and hazards they had to go through to get to work it was tough terrain and long hours so uh like he noticed that many of the workers were west indian so he realized that since they were from uh, british protectorates that he would go to the british consulate in limon and basically tell them that citizens under british protection were being submitted to these conditions and essentially the consul told him that they couldn't do anything about it and essentially snubbed him up and he decided not to go back to the job at the United Fruit Company but stayed working at the docks for a while and he saw the exact same problem so he decided to try to organize the workers and edit a newspaper and then realized that uh, most of the workers were either not interested or illiterate so he decided to call it quits and he left the country at that time eventually in 1921 once Junia and the Black Star Line were established as an international force, he returned to Limon in the Black Star Line boat in 1921, and he commissioned the construction of a Liberty Hall, and he stated that he wanted Limon to be the official Central American port for the Black Star Line, and he even got a meeting with the president. So he traveled by land from Limon to San Jose, met the president, and then went back to Limon. And finally, the, the Liberty Hall was constructed in 1922. I think the Black Star Line was defunct by then, but it did work as the Central American headquarters for the UNIA and still does. Well, the, the building uh, burnt down in 2016, but it did work as the headquarters for the UNIA for all that time. Wow. Oh, and regarding if his ideas had made it here, I think that that's a solid yes. Uh, of the 90 chapters in the mid-1920s accounted for the UNIA, 23 were in Costa Rica. So it had pretty strong affiliation down here. UNIA is the acronym Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was Garvey's organization. Right, and that was in the 1920s in the U.S. as well. Shifting gears a little from Garveyism to Marxism, I'd like to know what you guys thought about what Donevskaya calls and 
discusses quite a bit in the pamphlet, The American Roots of Marxism. Do you want to take that on? Well, um, to be honest, it's, it was a hard question for me. If you ask me what I would say that the roots of Marxism in the American Revolution are, well, first off, it's this great colonization of land by a new bourgeoisie. You know, it doesn't have all the European aristocratic elements to it. So it's like a like a bourgeois experiment, I would say, uh, with the, the, the working class who, who is there. You know, they are either slaves or ex-proletarians from, from Europe or immigrant labor. But this is like... This new phenomenon back then you know it's not like right now where you have i don't know let's say a mexican in the united states just uh people literally leaving their country but um this different type of country is that they're leaving you know they they are they are leaving the rural industrial europe beginnings of capitalism and so i guess marx is uh paying attention to these developments his theory is dependent on these new developments and it brings the question i guess of what happens when capitalism expands and expands into new territory, which is different from, you know, how the people in Europe were thrown off the land with the sheep farming and all that stuff. It's way different because it, over, over in America, what happened is the natives got murdered, they got sent away, which is very euphemistic. So, you know, I, I, I think that Marx is um, looking at, at a development that stands on its own under capitalism. And it's this agrarian development, it's this um, industrial development. It is, again, you know, a, a development also of classes. Uh, between you know the south and the north i would i would situate my answer around there does anyone want to comment on marx's direct relationship to the civil war and the black struggle and its relation to the uh, labor movement in the united states marx wrote uh, very specifically about that there was this section where Marx reprimands the northern workers or the northern socialists, I'm not sure, for saying that they are both against slavery and, what's the word, um, salaried labor, where Ma Marx goes a step further and doesn't just throw everything in the same bag, which is, you know, uh, very telling in terms of a correct political analysis. You know, th he reprimands them because he's not seeing, that they are not seeing that slavery is way worse, it's just a human abomination. Okay, let's turn for a moment anyway, see if somebody wants to address the question of anti-imperialism in the black movement and how extraordinary that was and how far ahead of the white workers were the black ones on that. Does anyone want to comment on that aspect of the pamphlet? So one thing I, I, I noticed was this irrelevance in the text of how black workers in the States are usually the more, you know, forward thinking, more advanced in their radicalism. And it is very telling that they are the first to denounce these imperialist wars as just, you know, wars between the bourgeoisie. And um, they're the first to, to say that they don't want to fight those wars. That is very important. And that is one of the important subjects of, you know, how the United States developed as a nation, you know, it, it developed as a giant export of capital. And black workers in the States States were the first ones to realize this. And Marx, I think, is staying on top of all these things. Yeah, I found interesting how related is the problem of freedom of black communities. They're seeking are almost always related with industries that are taking advantage of the work of other people. And that is something that is characteristic of the North American problem in their society. I, I remember 
remember a part in the pamphlet that says that some moment of the movement for liberation, they were telling that their problem in North America or the US was not the same that labor movement was having in European countries. So because in European countries, workers were trying to be apart from the independent and were workers looking for in in the US was for uh, an integration. So those are things that I found interesting about the specific topic of, of liberation in the US, you know. Trying to address Anne's question, I feel like that she states that, that there is very little difference between uh, capitalistic expansion and imperialism, and that in the end, this search for land was driven to expand slavery. But she does make the note that several anti-imperialistic efforts had been made outside of the U.S., let me turn to this question. What did you all learn about Donayevskaya's philosophy of Marxist humanism from this pamphlet? Yeah, something that I learned about Donayevskaya's philosophy of Marxist humanism is this part of internationality, this topic that involves not only one country or one culture, but the integration of a lot of movements of people of, of colors and genders and ages. This kind of situations we are discussing, I don't know, Black Lives Matters and any kind of freedom movement it has to be with a lot of people. I know that in a lot of parts of the pamphlet there is the term external forces. I really believe that is something important. I actually learned from this Dinaeus pamphlet about the external forces because in the study group we were living it. We were talking with a person from the United States here in Costa Rica and, and she, I can say, uh, teaches a lot of about history, about Marxist humanism and it's kind of an example of how these external forces or international forces are important to make a, a powerful movement. <laughs> I don't know if it's the correct way to say it, but it is really important for me to understand that uh, the project of freedom is a project that must be international. I have also pretty much internalized this concept of integration that I think is very important and, and it's related also with the, the international aspect of, the, of this philosophy, but I, I take it as something apart because I think it's very important to integrate all the people in this kind of efforts. We actually can see it right now in these times with the LGTV movement that is being a, a strong part of the Black Lives Matters movement. And there's actually this variation of the campaign that is trans lives matters because I, I think the movement is trying trying to integrate these uh, other kind of people that have been ignored 
for a lot of time. So uh, integration is something that if you learn pamphlet, you have to uh, really much uh, understand. And, and last, for me, it's now very clear that everything that is Marxist, included Marxist humanism, has to take in consideration the praxis, but also the ideal. We, if we are trying to be Marxist or Marxist humanist philosophers, we have not to stop just only in the philosophy, but we also have to work and to create movement and make movement and work for what we want to get. But we cannot also just be working and creating revolts, but we also have to have a strong ideology or ideal that unite us. I would maybe like to add just real quick to that one. I'd learned that Dunayevskaya was a very clairvoyant, I guess, in how she relates the, the situation within, let's say, the third world, in wh of which the United States was part of at its beginning. So I, I, I did learn how she does realize that there is a, a strata of the intellectual, let's say, working class that gets lifted from its place uh, because of the inner workings of, of imperialist economies. And I, and I also learned a little bit more specifically, I guess, what she thinks about the vanguard and how the vanguards are not really or always the, the most clairvoyant uh, part of the of the movement. Yeah, I'd like to come in on that because I've been reflecting on something somebody said way back about Dunyevskaya emphasizing the spontaneity of, well, mass movements for freedom in America and particularly the vanguard role of the black dimension. Somebody said, and I don't entirely agree with it, that until Black Lives Matter, what we've had is just self-appointed leaders. I think if you take, for instance, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he became a leader because the Montgomery bus boycott made him a leader, I think. I don't think he, he came in from outside or was self-appointed as a leader. But certainly I think it's true that what is foremost about the current uprising for black lives is its spontaneity. And what I would like to get a sense of is how people think about, how you think about that. Is that good? Is that bad? What openings does it create? What kind of problems does it create? And in addition to that, or in relation to that, why do you think it is that Dunyevskaya was emphasizing the spontaneous character uh, of the, the movements for freedom, especially the black movement in, in the U.S.? What, what do you think she was trying to drive at with that? Yeah, I just wanted to make a short comment, you know, like that for me, the spontaneous nature is a visibilization that the underlying conditions uh, remain, that the origin of the problem is consistent. And what I think is uh, the most dangerous or consequence of this is that there is a tendency to fall back to the same pattern that existed before with just some cosmetic changes, you know, like the, the context change a bit, the conditions change a bit, but the underlying problem isn't addressed, and that eventually leads to a future spontaneous uprising. 
what I would say is that, to put it like with an analogy, the spontaneity of the masses happens because they are at the front line of capitalism, so to speak. You know, they are the ones manning the machines, and they are the ones who have the first notion of what capitalism really is before it comes into words. I would say, as soon as it touches the body, you know, they they have the the, the bodily contact with the machine before you know any any kind of theory comes up. So the their spontaneity would come from there. But uh, being that it is pre-theoretical, so to speak, the step into theory involves this issue where the words become, just as the machines that they produced become the things that rule over them, their own ideas and the po the people they put up to represent them might end up controlling them as well. So it's this irony, I guess, that's that's at the, at the beginning of the question, but it's not unsolvable. It's not just like that this is like a metaphysical eternal law, but I think that what Dunayevsky is saying is that the problem is how to make it so that when the masses put their reality into thought and action, it doesn't become something estranged from them. Just like the machine becomes dominant over them, their own movements, political movements, their own uh, leaders, their own ideas start to uh, lose their, their edge as soon as they come up. So I guess uh, the, the, the question is how to make these, uh, these spontaneous attacks uh, retain their edge enough so that they can become, you know, a coherent theory, a coherent practice. Well, now you're raising some very big questions, Francisco, which is how do we get to the new society? How do we get to overthrow capitalism and uproot it completely and start something entirely new? And that, you know, our view is that the working people have to control their own lives and control every aspect of society and not uh, give over power to, to think or to decide anything uh, or else we'll just have a new division between thinking and doing, which is what characterizes all of capitalist society. So we want to get to something entirely new. But I thought that, <laughs> I thought that you had in mind when you said a lot long time ago now, you know, that there's self-appointed vanguards of movements. I thought you were thinking about, like, I think you've mentioned several times the Trotskyist parties in Latin America, who whenever there's any kind of people's movement will rush in and try to take it over and take over leadership. And Donievskaya mentions a similar phenomenon with the communists uh, throughout the 20th century, and some Trotskyists too. Um, and that's a very deep problem and to that we have to oppose and hold up as a positive uh, a philosophy of Marxist humanism whose, whose um, thought is to have the mass movements take power and empower themselves and self-develop themselves until they're capable of running society. I guess Anne, I might have a question for you. I know you've read this material before but I wonder if you gleaned any more new insights or clar clarity about the pamphlet this time through radiant with uh, these Costa Rican comrades. Oh, yes. Uh, I did. I got very excited reading with them because of their uh, trying to relate some of it to their own experiences in their country or in Central America in general, and their particular interest in the questions of imperialism and the anti-imperialist movement, you know, the Spanish-American War, the invasion of Cuba and annexation of it, <coughs> and the Philippines, but um, the fact 
fact that uh, that the black movement in the U.S. were the only people who were opposing it, uh, you know, gives that added dimension to that movement. So I would say on on that question, and also the questions arising from the agricultural nature of the Southern U.S. antebellum and after the Civil War as well for many years, that they related to the history of Costa Rica with the banana and coffee plantations being the, the dominant industries for a very long time. So that sort of gave a, a, an international flavor to reading this pamphlet. But most particularly is, was, is the universalism of the ideas. I mean, we're talking about a nationalist movement. Yes, the black movement. But what it has in common with all the other freedom movements all around the world uh, uh, is so much. And I think it is the humanism of Marxism, uh, the idea that um, people are capable of self-developing, that that's the one thing that's constant in human nature is is change, is self-development. Not because anyone tells people to, to change, but because it is the very nature of people to develop their minds and their skills. And uh, I, I'm glad to hear that some of our, um, our guests are reading Donevsky's books now so that they'll get a, a much more deeper and sort of more organized presentation of Marxist humanism. And for me, it was quite exciting to see some of this through their eyes. Well, we're out of time for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. We hope you have enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about these topics and others, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org for other readings and more episodes. If you like the podcast, you can donate, you can subscribe, you can share it with your friends and enemies. And we'd love to hear from you. 